All right, will you turn your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24. That's where we've come, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. All right, let's read. Deuteronomy 24, 1. God's law here says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, even as I prayed in preparation this week, O Lord, that you would make this clear. This is not easy for us, O Lord. Open the eyes of our hearts and our understanding to to get what this is really saying, O Lord. And then in getting what it's saying, Lord, help us to apply it to our lives. Move in our hearts, O Lord, uh, and show us your great love for us. Even in this law, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thinking about this sermon this week, uh, my mind went to the California gold rush, of all things. I don't actually know a lot about the gold rush, but I do know a couple of basic things. I, I know some people went out and they dug in the wrong place with the wrong tools and they found no gold. And I know some people went out and dug in the right place with the right tools and, and they found some gold. And I think our passage for tonight is a lot like that. It was for me this week. Lots of people come to our passage, they're looking for God's words about divorce, and they've come to the right place, but they don't come with the right tools, and they don't come with the right assumptions, so they don't find a lot of gold. What I want to do tonight is I want to come at this passage with the right tools, with the right assumptions, and show you the beautiful gold that God has in this passage, because there is beautiful gold. So first, let's look at the wrong way that a lot of people approach this passage, uh, then let's use some tools to get a better understanding of this passage. Make sure we've got it the right way. And then let's talk about the beautiful gold that's found in this passage. Those three things. Wrong way, right way, and the gold. So first, let's look at this passage, how it's usually wrongly misunderstood. To start, it actually it makes sense that people come to this passage to study divorce in the Bible because this is the only passage in the entire Old Testament that discusses divorce at length. Uh, there are actually a bunch of other passages that talk about divorce in passing, that it's a reality, but this is the only passage that gives us information, rationale about divorce. So for this reason, if you want to come to this a text about this topic in the Old Testament, you come to this text, but most people, when they come to this text, they look at it on a more surface level, and they see it as sort of commanding divorce in a certain circumstance, like, when am I allowed to get divorced? Or they see it as a how-to, like how are we supposed to get divorces? So they read it and they say something like, okay, well, I guess if, if I can find some indecency in my wife, 
I either can divorce her or I should divorce her, I guess. And if I want to divorce her, this is how I do it. It says here, write a certificate of divorce, send her away. And I guess the only thing I have to be mindful then is that I can't marry her again later. And simple enough, as people read this passage. I know people read this passage this way because the two big rabbinical schools of Jesus' day read this passage this way. The Shammai school, rabbinical school, read this law, and they, they said, well, a divorce can only happen if a man finds indecency in his wife. And then they went on to define what that means. What does indecency mean? And the Hillel school read this law, and they said, well, you can actually get a divorce for any reason. And in one Talmudic tract, they write, if a man can divorce his wife, if she spoiled his dish. So we can confirm that this is how they read this law because this is what they say to Jesus in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees are trying to trip up Jesus. They say in Matthew 19, 3, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, they ask him. They're kind of trying to trap him in this age-old debate. They're like, well, all the other rabbis haven't been able to figure it out. Let's see what he says. We'll trap him. And when Jesus basically says, no, you can't divorce for any reason in verse 7, they say, well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They, they're thinking, this law is telling you about when you can get divorced. It's commanding divorce. It's a how-to about divorce. And it's not just the rabbis that had this reading. This is actually the way I think the, the King James Version uh, has a bad translation of this passage. You look at verse 1 in the King James Version. It says, when a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Here's the, then let him write her a bill of divorcement. Reads like a command. And give it in her hand and send her out of his house. So you can see the King James Version, it's wonderful in other passages, but in this passage it can be naturally read to mean that Moses is commanding divorce. Moses is actually putting forward divorce here and I think this reading's still alive and well today. I, I know this because I've puzzled at this passage before. I wondered what's going on in this passage, and I'm sure you can imagine this is a favorite verse for our opponents. You can just see your friend who is no friend of the Bible. They can read this verse and be outraged by it. They'll say, well, you mean a man can divorce his wife if he finds indecency in her? How terrible is this book, they would say, reading this book. Anyway, for our first point, I just want to show you that there's a common, shallower way of reading this passage that doesn't get at the gold that's here. And that is a good transition now, but let's, let's try to get a better understanding of what this passage is really saying, what this law is really saying. Put on our thinking cap. So, all right, let me just tell you first in a kind of deductive way what this passage is talking about right from the start, and then I'll build you and get you there. For a couple, in a couple ways. So first, this law is all about discouraging divorce for inadequate reasons. That's the heartbeat of this text. Now, to really get at the heart of this passage, I think it's helpful for us to use four really important tools. The first tool is just a really basic understanding of God, who God is from the rest of Scripture, just good old systematic theology, thinking about what we know about God. Is, is God faithful? Yes. Does God value marriage? Yes. Does it make sense that God would make a law that makes divorce easy and exploitative, divorce, uh, marriage being his idea? No. So absolutely not. This should inform our reading of this text. That's just my first tool of four. 
just kind of gives us an orientation of what we know about God from the rest of the word and everything else that he said, systematic theology. Now, our second tool is understanding the genre of this law. This passage is not a blatant command like the Ten Commandments. It's not a how-to guide, how to do divorce. This passage is an example of case law. So the way case law works is usually uh, there's a long scenario laid out, and then you get the particular application in that case. So in other words, there's a bunch of if statements. If this happens and this happens and you're in this sort of scenario, that happens first. It's called a protasis, if you're looking at the technical term. And then there's a big then statement. So if all these things are happening, if this happens, this happens, this happens, then comes the law. Then this. That's the apodosis is what it's called. Rhetoric. So we, we've seen this over and over again in Deuteronomy. I just didn't say anything about it before. It didn't really matter that much before, but like in Deuteronomy 22, two chapters ago, we saw the setup of a scenario. We saw the whole if section, the protasis. If a man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and then accuses her of misconduct, it's a long, it's setting the scenario. It's telling you this is the situation we've got here. Then after the scenario is all spelled out, you have the then section. It's the application of the law for that particular circumstance. If this and then this and this, if this is the situation you've got, then this is what it says. Deuteronomy 22. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence and so on and so forth. So what we have here in Deuteronomy 24 is you've got three verses describing the situation, describing a scenario as a case study, a long if section, and then in verse 24, you've got the then. Then this is what you do in this long situation. So I actually think the ESV gets this, this time, it gets the translation better because it's phrased that way. ESV says, if she finds no favor, he'll write her a certificate of divorce. If she becomes another man's wife and he divorces her. And then all of a sudden in verse 24, we've got the then. Then her former husband may not take her again to be his wife. That's the command part. Because you see, Deuteronomy 24 is a case law. It's laying out the application of God's law in this scenario, in the scenario of remarriage. It's not commanding divorce whenever you find an indecency. It's not telling you how to go about getting a divorce. Actually, the fact of the matter is that divorce isn't commanded anywhere in the Bible. It's not commanded anywhere in the Bible. If you're actually looking for a section on divorce in the Old Testament, other than this, you won't find it. Do you know why that is? I had to think about this for a second. I thought, oh, you know, Israel, they, they wouldn't have needed one. Because you think about it, any, any offense serious enough to bring about a divorce already received the death penalty in Israel. Well, did he cheat on you? Well, Israel had a rule for that. Did he beat you? Well, Israel had a rule for that. Did he abandon you? Israel had a rule for that. And saying you won't need a divorce because God's law didn't let offenders live long enough to have one. So anyway, you can see how a recognition of genre really helps us understand this law. This is how this works. It's laying out a big situation for us and then giving us a command. And then moving on to our third tool, let's just look at the language of this passage a little bit more carefully. Because first we have to understand what a couple words mean. Because you might think, well, some of these words are kind of vague. Well, you're right. Uh, first we have to understand what indecency means. Because the man wants to... He, he finds something indecent in his wife. So what, is it, what does indecency mean? Well, the word for indecency, this is the word that's used in the last chapter we read 
for a guy with a nocturnal emission. It's one of the only other places it's used. Sorry to return there. Well, so our, our best shot at this is that an indecency is something unseemly, we'll say. It's some kind of nakedness it could be translated. Then we also have to understand, he's, he's, he's found some sort of unseemliness in his wife. He's found some sort of nakedness in his wife. It's not altogether clear exactly what that means, but that's our best shot at it. Then we also have to understand the word in this passage for favor, that she finds no favor in his eyes. And this word is the word for grace. It's the word for grace. Like in Genesis 6, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This woman did not find grace in the eyes of her husband. So there's actually some sort of pun going on here. I want you to see this pun. It all has to do with the word finding. The husband finds some indecency in his wife, but she finds no grace in his eyes. See that? The husband finds something unseemly or immodest about his wife, hardly grounds for divorce, and the wife finds no grace in his eyes. Let me ask you, who comes off looking like the loser in this comparison? I mean, to my mind, it's the husband. It's the guy who has no godlike grace, the guy that divorces his wife for a small thing. In looking at the language of the passage, we have to ask the question then, okay, well then why can't he remarry her? She's been divorced, so why can't he remarry her? Well, the language says, the law says, he may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled. You think, well, what does that mean? And then it says that such an action would be an abomination. That means God hates it. And it would bring sin upon the land. It's it's polluting to the land. Well, what does that mean? In what sense has this lady been defiled? Well, I think we find the answer in Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18.20, we read, amongst other things, that adultery makes people defiled. The ESV says unclean. It's the same word in Hebrew, just translated in different English words. Leviticus 18.20 says this. It says, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. Same word as defiled. You shall not defile yourself with her. Then a few verses later in Leviticus, we find out that adultery makes the land unclean and it's an abomination. Same words. Leviticus 18.24, do not make yourselves unclean, defiled by any of these things, for by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, defiled. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants, but you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations. So here's where I'm going with this, and it's a, it's a building a case. The woman was considered defiled because she'd been an adulteress. You say, well, how is she an adulteress? She's divorced. Well, she became an adulteress because she was divorced without cause. She's divorced for indecency. And then she remarried. And that was adulteress. According to this reading, then, who's the bad guy? Who's Who's to blame for the woman's defilement? Is it her? Well, no, it's not her. She was divorced without cause. It was the husband who was to blame. The husband who had no grace in his eyes for her and put her away for indecency. See how the language starts to open this passage up for us. But I have one more tool in our toolbox that I think really proves you're saying, I don't know, Pastor Ross, I don't know if I'm quite there with you about your interpretation of this. Well, I've got one more tool in this toolbox that I think really proves this reading. Our last tool is the words of Jesus. 
It's using scripture to interpret scripture. It's using Jesus' words as our inspired commentary. Let's read what Jesus had to say about this law in Matthew 19.3. I want you to see that Jesus has the same interpretation of the law that I've been pushing. Lo and behold, that's because I got my interpretation from Jesus. So Matthew 19.3. I just want to read a couple verses and then we'll, I'll walk you through it. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read what, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So I want you to walk through this passage with me for a second. We said before, Deuteronomy 24 doesn't command divorce. The Pharisees said, well, this commands divorce. They said, why then did Moses command? Jesus says, no, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. There's a pretty big difference between commanding something and allowing it as a concession. Jesus admits divorce is a thing. It's been a thing in every culture since the fall, but it wasn't God's idea. It's true that God allows divorce. He allows it as a mercy to those who are suffering under the heel of serious infidelity or abuse, but he still hates it. It's a necessary evil, you might say. Well, next, we said before that God, in his infinite faithfulness, has a high view of marriage. That's exactly what Jesus is upholding when the Pharisees ask, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Jesus takes them straight to Genesis for the ideal. He says, marriage should be an inseparable bond. Then we said Deuteronomy 24, talking about a man who divorces his wife for inadequate grounds because of some indecency. She finds no grace in his eyes, and he forces her to become an adulteress. And what does Jesus say when he's asked about this law? This is the, this is the Old Testament divorce law. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, he says. If you have eyes to see it, Jesus is explaining the whole point of Deuteronomy 24. That's what he's doing. They've opened this law. He says, well, I wrote this law. And he says, this is what it means. You put it all together, Deuteronomy 24 is giving you a scenario where a man finds something in his wife that he doesn't like. Not even totally sure what that is. He has no grace for her, so he divorces her, sends her out according to the custom of his day, and the last verse is a warning for this guy. It's a warning at the end of all this that you can't remarry her. You've defiled her. You've divorced her for inadequate reasons. You've made her an adulteress. You can't marry her again. Now, that's a far different reading than most people, could, just a surface-level reading you'd come to. So how do we get there? We came there through knowing God, through systematic theology, understanding the genre, how Deuteronomy works, understanding the language, the exact words, using scripture to interpret scripture, using Jesus' words as our inspired commentary. Now, having done all the hard work, that's the hard work, that's the digging, that's the sweat. Now, I think we have some gold that we can hold up as a result.
of all this digging. So let's talk about the gold that's here in this passage, the part that I was really eager to get to. I think we find at least two really big gold nuggets in this passage. The first is that this law reinforces for us the sacredness of marriage. You know, even just on a surface level, this law is a beautiful protection of marriage. It protects man because it makes a man stop and think before he goes through with the divorce. Forces him to consider, wait a minute, if I divorce her, there's no going back. Actually, worse than that, more than that, forces him to think, if I divorce her for the wrong reasons, I am compounding my sin with adultery. More directly, though, this law also protects the woman. It's ironic to me, most people read this law on a surface level. They say, this is so oppressive to women. Men can just divorce their wives for some indecent reason. I say, you're not understanding this law very well. This law is protecting wives from wife swapping. What's to stop a guy from just divorcing at will? Laws like this. This is actually one of the practices of some of Israel's neighbors, wife swapping. Not like on the TV show. And it protects women from being taken advantage of. You can easily imagine a scenario where a man wants to remarry his ex-wife because, well, her second husband has died and he was loaded. And he wants, oh, actually, I'll have you back now, now that you've had an inheritance. So this law protects women from exploitation. And you can imagine all other kinds of scenarios why he'd want her back. But more than all this, though, this law preaches to us that God takes marriage more seriously than maybe we have ever imagined. God sees marriage as inseparable. When God joins two people in marriage, Malachi says he does it with a portion of his spirit. He makes two people one in a way we can hardly begin to understand. And God values marriage as a most sacred covenant. He sees our marriage vows as being absolutely binding. Our vows constitute a covenant, a holy reflection of his son's commitment to his church, his forever commitment. I don't think we realize how big marriage is, how important marriage is, how inviolable marriage is. I think our culture affects us a lot more than we realize. We see other people go in and out, in and out, in and out of marriage, and we think, well... Listen, this law preaches to you marriage is no little breezy matter of convenience. It's for keeps. It's for life. Marriage is something to be prioritized. Marriage is something to be fought for. And listen, if you have a friend, if you have a Christian counselor who you start to complain about your marriage, you say things aren't good, they get tired of hearing it, and they tell you, oh, well, you guess you just need a divorce. Well, then you need a new confidant. They're the counselors of Job. Divorce shouldn't even be in our vocabulary because marriage is a really big deal to God. And if you divorce for inadequate reasons, he says, this passage says, you're leading yourself into adultery. And adultery has a defiling effect, not just for yourself, but for your family and for your entire covenant community. That's the first gold nugget we get from this passage. God takes marriage deathly serious. Our second nugget, though, I want you to see at this law, it's not just about our relationships with our spouses. It's bigger than that. This law has bigger implications for our relationship with God. To get this, I, I want you to look at one other place where this law is brought up directly in the Bible. If we go to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. I'd love you to see this. Jeremiah 3, verse 1. To give you the context, this is the build-up to the God finally giving over his people into the hands of the Babylonians. And 
God's making a case. He's actually crying out, speaking as a man speaks. He's crying out in pain that his wife, his lover, his people has been so unfaithful to him. Jeremiah 3.1, God's making his case. He says, now listen for the law we just read in this passage. He says in Jeremiah 3.1, if a man divorces his wife and she goes out from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? You see what's going on in this passage. God's using the same law, his law, to condemn his people. He's telling his people, you remember Deuteronomy 24? Let's apply it to you. You've been an unfaithful spouse time and time again. It's we're divorced lawfully by the law. There is no way back for you, is what he's saying. Those are some pretty chilling words to hear from God, especially if you're living in that community back then. It makes sense, though. These are Jeremiah's words leading up to the Babylonian captivity. He's saying, by the law, there's no way back for you. You can't return to your first husband. It's very chilling. Here's the thing, though. I, I think he could just as easily say those words to people today. We might be idolaters on a different scale, but we're idolaters all the same. Who among us loves God like we ought? We give our hearts to so many things all the time. How often do we put our trust in something else? How often is something else our chief satisfaction, our chief love? According to God's law, he absolutely has grounds to divorce all of us. And the fact of the matter is that according to the law that we've been studying tonight, there shouldn't be any way home. The letter of the law says you can't get remarried to your first spouse. Because you see, this is what God's law does. God's law shows you this is where you've strayed, and this is your sentence. And that's what God's law does. That's all God's law can do. But then here's the really amazing thing. Later in Jeremiah, God calls his people and says, return to me. There are lots of examples of this in Jeremiah. Just look at verse 12, chapter 3. He says, God says, go and proclaim these words to the north. He said in verse 8 that he's divorced the north already. He's already divorced them. But he says in verse 12, go and proclaim these words to the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you've rebelled against the Lord your God scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, that you've not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I was reading this this week. I thought, well, this presents a problem. How can this be? God's law specifically says if a poor person divorces and remarries, they can't go back to their first spouse. So how can God call his people? He said, I've, I've divorced you. And then he calls his people and says, come and return to me. I said, is that not against the law? Well, again, the, you ask the question, how can God's people return to him? Well, again, the answer is not the law. The law has no power to save. The law just says, well, you're guilty. And it hands you over for sentencing. That's all the law does. 
So what's the answer then? Well, you know the answer. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's law says you can't return to him. You've been too unfaithful. Yeah. But Jesus made a way at the cross. Here's how. Normally, what's the only way out of marriage? We'll say it jokingly. What's the only way out of marriage? Death. What's the only way to clear yourself in the eyes of the law? What's the way to escape the law's sentence against you? It's death. That's it. So how is it that you can lawfully leave an adulterous marriage to the world and go back to God? How is it that you can escape the law's decree and you can go back to your first husband? How can you annul a bad marriage? It's by dying dying with Christ and rising with him to a whole new life. I want you to see this blew my mind. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 7. Romans 7, 1 says this. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as, only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Okay, that's how all this works. Now, listen to this last verse, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Do you see what that's saying? This is saying that even though you stand condemned by the law, there is absolutely no way under the law that you can return to him. Jesus includes you in his death so you can be dead to the law's demands dead to your adulterous marriages, so you can start fresh with him forever. If you're united to Jesus by faith, then you're dead to the legal demand of Deuteronomy 24. You can go home to him again. Only in Jesus. That's it. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is, this is good news. That's why it's called the good news, right? your conscience is still working, I'm sure you felt the weight of the law on your shoulders. Say, I am very adulterous. I am so, ugh. You may have thought, well, ugh, I'm horrible because I've read this passage wrong my entire life and I've given some crummy advice. Or I've never taken marriage anywhere near as seriously as I should have. I'm suffering as a result. That might be the cry of your heart. Maybe you've actually committed adultery before and, and you can't let go of that guilt. Or maybe you've committed adultery not just in person, but just in your heart all the time. Maybe at some time in your past, you got divorced yourself without adequate grounds. You've made yourself an adulterer. You've made another person an adulterer. Maybe you just recognize there's rampant spiritual, spiritual adultery in your heart, and you know that if you were just to sit under God's law, you know what God's law would conclude about you. The good news, brothers and sisters, is straight out of Romans 7. That my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. It says the, the demands of the law have died. They're nailed to the cross for you. Uh, you all of that guilt, all of that shit, it's gone. 
on the cross. It's gone because you have died. It says, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit to God, you have died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. Hmm. It's a good verse to memorize. When, when these assaults from the evil one, when he comes with his accusations, you say, but, but no, but I, I've died to the law through the body of Christ, so I might belong to another. He's my spouse. I'm back with him. I'm good with him. There's always a way to return to your first husband, and that way is Christ. That's what I'm trying to say. He must love you an awful lot to make you a way like that. So at the end of all this, I guess I'll say this. May we take our marriages more seriously because he has taken his marriage to us very seriously. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we'll pray on two levels. We'll pray, O oh Lord, for our marriages, Lord God. Protect them from the evil one, even as we've been talking about him this morning and all day. Protect our marriages, O oh Lord. Help our marriages. Help us to hang in there. Be true to our spouses, O oh Lord. May we glorify you and honor you through our marriages. And then second, we pray, O oh Lord, amazing love, how can it be? that you would restore us to yourself when we were hopeless under the law through the death and body of Christ. Oh, we are so blown away. Oh, Lord God, so may help us believe it, help us to live it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.